The preaching of God's Word this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And the readings prior to this help give some background and perhaps context to Paul's focus. So for the sake of some context, we'll read from chapter 2, verse 1, and a few verses beyond. So here then the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined to know, not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We look particularly this evening at verse 2. Paul writes, For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What Paul is providing to the Corinthians is a short summary of the whole of his preaching. That, as one author notes, Paul so harped upon this message that the whole of his preaching could be summarized with these words, that he preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't mean it's the only words that he used. It doesn't mean it's the only specific doctrine that he declared. But it does mean, surely, that it, if it means anything, that it was the main thing. It was the saturated message of all that he ever declared. Children, perhaps you can think of it this way. You think of the ocean as expansive as it is, all of the volume that it takes up on our earth, that we are in many ways, many times called uh, the, the, the blue planet. It's such from, the, uh, from outer space, as you look upon it, the grand scope is of the oceans. Well, you can ask the question, what's in the ocean? And you can think for a moment all the different creatures that are there that give us wondrous thoughts of their size and of their systems and how they relate and their movements and patterns and all of these things. But if we said this question, what is the main thing in the ocean? Well, you wouldn't say sharks or whales or fish even generally. You'd say water. Water's the main thing. When you look at the ocean, what's the main thing that you're looking at? You're looking at water. Yes, there's much else in that, but overwhelmingly so, water makes up the ocean. Well, the same is true as you look at the Apostle Paul. You can look at his epistles, you can look at the record of some of his sermons that are given to us in the book of Acts, and you can say, look, there's this doctrine and that doctrine, this practice and that practice, but overwhelmingly so, his focus was upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In fact, even when he touches upon practices, even when he touches upon obedience, he's often linking it directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see it as an example in Ephesians chapter 5 when he speaks of wives submitting unto their own husbands. And notice what he says, as unto the Lord, he presents Christ. He addresses husbands. Husbands, love your wives. He doesn't leave it there. He says, as Christ loved the church. And what else does he say? And gave himself for it. Christ and him crucified is even that which gives context to those particular duties. We are to love one another, which is the fulfilling of the commandments, but also to do so because Christ loved us. And so there's not something, as it were, of uh, this, this broad collision of you know, practices and obedience and commandments and Christ and grace and His work, but rather Paul and John and Peter and James are regularly displaying that these are united in a cohesive message. But the package that ought to be seen, the thing that is to be emphasized, as Paul is indicating, is 
the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the unique message of the church. Now, in context, you'll notice that Paul's ministry is presented following very quickly upon chapter 1 when he notes, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Perhaps gives us pause to see what this word glory means, glorieth, but he who boasts, he who brags. Oh, how often we can catch ourselves even eluding our own thoughts bragging about our abilities. Well, I and I and this and me and so on. Paul says, if ever you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Notice what he says right before that. Of Him, that is of God, are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The whole of the Christian life is bound up in Christ Jesus. And this then gives his lead-in to his own ministry. This is why he says, when I was with you, and you can read of his ministry in the book of Acts when he was in Corinth, and he's saying, when I was there, what did I do? What was my message? It wasn't, I've got this view different than that rabbi and this person. No, I came to declare Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined could be as simple as I decided I was resolved that the main thing that would be heard would not be misunderstood, that no one hearing me would leave without this understanding. What he's on about, what his message is, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He goes in the text as follows, and he states that this also modified and regulated his method. He didn't go with the astonishing pleasure of rhetoric, though he possessed that gift, as at times he displays it to put others, as it were, in their place. He didn't go and boast of his learning and say, yeah, yeah, I know that you know so-and-so and so-and-so, but let me tell you who I am. On occasion, he has to do so to answer the prejudice of people. But he says, no, I came not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Why did he choose to use plain speech? Why did he choose not to present himself? Why did he focus on this message as he did so? Verse 5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Brethren, there are many things that are related to these verses. The method, the manner of preaching, the method and manner of outreach and all of these things. But tonight, let us focus particularly on this message that he says he was pressed, he determined, he decided that he would not know anything among the Corinthians save this. Namely, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, before we go further, it might be helpful to think ahead. What does this have to do with you and with me? We're not apostles. No one here is an apostle. There's only one here that's a minister of the gospel who is so called to preach and so forth. But what does it have to do then with us? Well, it has a lot to do with us, both in what we should be coming with yearning desire to receive a message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But moreover, it reminds us as well that if this is what the Apostle made to be, as it were, the main thing to feed God's people as well as he does in this epistle, this should be the main thing as well that we're taking in for ourselves. This should be the staple diet of the Lord's people. You can think of it this way. Some of these faddish diets that come to pass, and it seems like every two or three years it gets switched to this and that. Oh, these are what the ancient uh, North Americans ate. These are what the ancient Central Americans ate. And these are what the ancient you know, South Americans ate and so forth and so on. And it goes on and it never gets asked, well, how long did they live? Well, their life expectancy was about 35 years. Why are we doing this? But think of this for a moment. It should be able to be said of Christians, this was their diet. What is it? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
That was their steady intake. That's what they were sharing. That's what they were rejoicing in. That's what gladdened their hearts. That's what brought them together. That's what they carried out to the rest of the world. And so you can do these studies and say, well, what did a typical legionary carry with them? Well, they carried this weapon and that weapon. They had this sack, and in that was this allotment of food and so forth. It should be said of us as Christians, What did they go with? What did they take to others? What did they take into themselves? And it should be able to summarize with what Paul says was his message, his central, his main emphasis. The Christians took Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Christians lived upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Christians fed upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They loved Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They shared Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so far from just being an insight into the Apostle Paul, it comes heavy with implications to us who would receive the apostolic message still today. So to help us consider two things, Jesus Christ, the message itself, And secondly, Jesus Christ, the message proclaimed. The message itself and the message proclaimed. Notice the text. It says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The message that Paul was earnest to impart unto others and which continued to the Christians, not only in Corinth, you can think of it almost Every epistle has its order and structure. But there, the common thread that goes throughout the chapters is the person and work of Christ, opened and applied. Think of, for instance, the epistle of Hebrews. It's full of Christ. Think of the epistle to the Romans. It's full of Christ. This isn't just the message to the world. It's the message that is opened and applied to the church. This is it. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 that I glory in Christ and Him crucified. It's the regular, steady message the Christian needs and delights in. Well, notice, this message is about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. That comes loaded with implication. Notice the simple words that are used. It says, Jesus Christ. You say, why are we emphasizing such common terms as these? Well, because it tells us something about this person. Yes, it's true that the name Jesus, or what you and I would hear today, Joshua, is something of a common name. It has to do with Jehovah saves, or Jehovah is salvation. It's putting together the notion of Jehovah and salvation. And yet, remember, always remember, that it was a particular name particularly given to this person. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? Not because, well, it's a long family name. Not because, well, it's a good name but because it's a name that stands, as it were, as a message. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name itself was a public testimony as to himself who bore it. Now, who is this one who bore it? Well, Jesus points us to remember he is the Savior. Who is the Savior? The Savior, of course, you and I will remember, is none less than the Son of God Himself. This is an emphasized point regularly in the Scriptures. John's Gospel opens with this very testimony. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You can see it in Colossians 1 and 2, that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Him. Nothing lacking of divinity. There's been, of course, throughout history over the past 200 years or so, this notion that came through higher critical thought that, well, this idea is actually that 
some of the Godhead was poured out into the person of Christ, but not all of it. He wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't omniscient and so on. But it's to miss the wonder of the incarnation. Jesus regularly displays that though it lay hidden from the perception of men, that He is truly, fully God. The Savior whom we delight in, the message which we proclaim, is not a common message of pagan origin that's been somehow cleaned up a bit. It is a unique message, not saying the gods have come down, which are just a little bit bigger figures of men, with all of their same faults, with all of their same weaknesses, and so forth. It is astounding to read ancient mythology. And to think for a moment that there are men who worshipped these faulty pictures of power. That their homes, as we could call it that, are broken. You have fathers devouring their children, casting them here and doing this, and their children rising up. And these are the gods whom these worshipped. Whatever else they are, they are not rightly bearing the name God. They're but somewhat enlarged figures of fallen men. But the one who is proclaimed in the Gospel is one who is truly, fully God. Paul tells us elsewhere that it is by Him that all things were created. John says the same thing. All things that were created were created by Him, such that not anything that was created was created without Him. Everything that has this characteristic of being something of creation was brought forth by this One, Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. But He's not only divine, though fully, He's also fully human. The wonder of His incarnation, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. What a wonder that was. It says Augustine that when he read through the Gospel of John with all of his previous pagan learning, he came to that statement where it says, and the Word became man and dwelt among us. And he said, this is ludicrous. How could the divine principle, how could this glorious reality take upon Himself flesh? But the wonder is, this is precisely what's taken place. The Son of God, fully divine, took upon Himself not just any nature. Hebrews makes much of this. He took upon Himself the nature of men, humanity, rebels against God. And so even it says that He took upon Himself the likeness of sinful flesh, though without sin. So here He is, not just in glorified flesh, not in some flesh, however it was before the fall, but He took on the weakness of humanity with all of its misery, with all of its uh, weakness of pain and hunger and other such things that plagued Him. He took that on Himself. This is the person we proclaim. This is the person that we need. But notice, it's Jesus Christ. That word is likewise significant. It holds forth the truth that it's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Anointed One. The One whom Abraham rejoiced to see. Remember this always. There has always ever been one Savior. Always. Thus Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham with faith looked to Jesus Christ and was saved by faith in Him. Now, this word Christ has a rich heritage in the Bible because, of course, you know this. Sometimes we, sometimes we start to think, well, our catechism is just sort of a theological jargon. It's a bunch of definitions and so on. Not realizing the rich biblical heritage that is being represented there. Sure, they're theological terms. But let's not confuse the notion 
that theology and biblical faithfulness are not necessarily opposed. There can be opposition of philosophy and theology, falsely so-called, but when theology is representing the truth of the Scriptures, it's a beautiful thing. And we have this with reference to Christ who had a threefold office. Think of this. He's prophet, he's priest, he's king. What do all three of them have in common? Well, several things, but not least of which is that all three of them were anointed. They were set apart to their office by anointing. Children, you remember this, right? There's David, and Saul has rebelled, and God has said, listen, you're done. And so what happens? David is anointed, right? This happens with other kings as well. It happens with priests who were anointed upon their entrance. It happens to prophets who are likewise anointed as well. It's demonstrating his office. What's an office? Well, we might think today of an office as a building. Someone goes and does something. But actually, that's the application of a previous idea. Office has to do with work. What's our work to be done? Well, I'm doing it in this room, which I'll call my office. What is the work that Christ came to do? He came to serve as prophet. He came to serve as priest. He came to serve as And by the way, brethren, he remains those things. He hasn't stopped being prophet. Sometimes people have this notion that, you know, what I need is I need just sort of personal um, study of God's Word. I pray that all of us multiply our personal study of God's Word. But what's interesting is Christ commissions ministers to preach His Word and unites with that a particular promise that He will feed His people by pastors. Independent American evangelicalism has turned away from the priority of public worship and has moved to prioritize private social studies. There's a place for those things. But you will never find in God's Word the rich promises that attend public proclamation of it. Why? Because what's going on, as Christ says in His Word, is that Christ has given a gift. What's the gift? Pastors and teachers who will then feed God's people. This is why historically, from the earliest days of the church to the modern day, faithful men have said public worship is to be prioritized above private worship. Does that mean we ought not to prioritize private at all? No. Why is that? Because it's through His ordinances that the Anointed One most powerfully reigns. This is significant. The King speaks when the preacher preaches. say, well, preachers are fallible. They are. But it's intriguing, isn't it? Paul says, listen to the Ephesians, You know, you've not so learned Christ if indeed you've heard Him. When did the Ephesians ever hear Christ? The Ephesians were never there. They weren't in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But what did they hear? They heard preachers preach. And when a preacher preaches faithfully, this is the biblical understanding. You hear the voice of Christ. You hear the Word of Christ. You can see this regularly. The Word of God, which is preached unto you. How shall they hear except one be sent? To do what? To preach. So, Paul says, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Notice what he's saying. Preaching God's Word faithfully is giving the hearing of God Himself. Here's the point. The Christ who fulfills these offices is ministering through the preached Word His prophetic office still. That when you gather to hear the preaching of God's Word and it faithfully goes forth, you can rightly say by the authority of God's Word, I have heard my prophet. Not that man in the pulpit. I've heard the prophet Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming. It's not only that He's proclaimed. He's proclaiming unto us His will. He's feeding us. Brethren, we don't have an absent Christ. 
We don't have an absent Savior. We have a person who still ministers to us. We have a priest who both died on the cross, paying for our sins, and who right now intercedes in heaven on our behalf. Right now, as your mind wanders, as my mind wanders, at night when we're fast asleep, when we awaken and we're startled and so forth, and we fall back, what is Christ doing? That same Savior who offered up Himself on the cross is there presenting Himself in heaven on your behalf. It's that Savior, Jesus Christ. You have a King who is ruling all things right now. Everything is under the perfect, sovereign power, control, and authority of this person. And so we're told by Paul that he's ascended up above all all principality. There's no ruler over Him. He's over all. And He's governing everything. Tremendous is the knowledge that Christ, our anointed, is this Savior. And this is who is proclaimed to us. But notice the message is not just about this person, the Savior who has these offices that address our ignorance and our guilt and our rebellion. But also, the message itself is about His work and Him crucified. So it's not just a theoretical, academic lecture on the person of Christ. It's a pronouncement, a proclamation of this person and His work. And particularly the work of His being crucified. Now this, of course, is shorthand for a lot. Why was He crucified? To what end was He crucified? What was going on when He was crucified? All of that's bound up in this. Justification is bound up in His being crucified. But don't forget, sanctification is as well. Why? Because in being united to Christ, you're united to His death. So that we now are crucified together with Christ. So that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You see, it's all of this bound up. His comprehensive saving work in shorthand. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. His substitutionary death. His sacrifice on our behalf. His atonement. His propitiation. All of that. And oh, brethren, if ever you've been touched with conviction of your sin, the knowledge of Christ crucified is that knowledge which is most desperately desired. We ought to see this. The world craves all sorts of corruptions. Except it does not crave the crucified one which is what they need. But the church ought not to capitulate, but to hold forth Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's what sinners need. But brethren, it's what we need as well. We need Christ crucified. You need Christ crucified. You need that daily. You need that weekly, monthly, regularly. You need that in private, in your secret prayers, and in your secret readings, in your family gathering of before the throne of grace, in public. We need this. But let's notice, this is the grand summary that captures the message that was declared into Corinth, the message declared by the Apostle. It is the message about a person and His work. May I ask for a moment, is that what those who know you to be a Christian know about you? Is that the message they know from you? That person who talks to me, yes, they talk about these things and those things and other things, but if I had to summarize their message in a few words, I would say this, it's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It comes to ministers with an especial searching power. Can the ministry of this man be summarized with this? He preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's something that demands not only our thought, but our prayerful examination and if needs be, repentance that such would indeed be our message. This leads us then secondly to Jesus Christ the message proclaimed. Notice that Paul doesn't just say something about the person and work. He says, I determined not to know anything among you. 
The message that was made known is this message. It's the message of this person, of this work, of this person. This message is carried not just by Paul. It's not like he could say, listen, I was the apostle of the message of Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Peter was the message of a different thing. This is the message of the apostles. Paul was the apostle unto the Gentiles. Peter was the apostle unto the Jews. But both carried the same message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's instructive for us. Whatever there may be about cultural differences in the church, the message proclaimed ought to be one and the same. And this happens if you're ever privileged, of course, to sit down with Christians, true believers from a different region, a different culture. There's a lot of things that may be unique and different. Maybe the colors they wear are different. Maybe the way that they they talk is different. But the message they share is the same. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It also gives us, perhaps, we could say, those delighted ears to hear, even from brethren with whom we disagree, that they hold forth Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Many are the differences between ourselves and Lutherans. And we acknowledge there to be faults, and they would say as much of ourselves. But oh, when from their pulpits goes forth Christ and Him crucified, though we mourn whatever things there are elsewhere that are opposed to the revelation of God, that we rejoice that Christ and Him crucified is preached. Paul says as much. Listen, I'm in prison, and some people are preaching Christ just to provoke me. This is what I say. I rejoice that though it's preached of envy, Christ and Him crucified is preached. Does that mean that there's not sin there? Not at all. He's acknowledging as much. But he's saying, I rejoice in this, that Christ is being shared and proclaimed to others. What could make a man who knows these men are doing it to provoke me? Their method isn't it. They're not doing it for the right end. What could make him rejoice in that message being proclaimed? It's because he loved the person and work of the message. And the church will only proclaim that message if that's what they'll hear, what they want, what they love, what they delight. This is the message that the church is to make known, both in her official capacity as ministers of the gospel, but also throughout the body of the church, both in their sharing of the gospel, but brethren, as well, that message is to be shown in our living of the gospel. That is to permeate our relationships. It's to permeate our use of time. It's to permeate all that we are. That we are a people, as it were, held captive to this message made known to us. Brother prayed earlier how it is we wonder, O God, why is it that we should ever hear this message? Brother, think of that for a moment. You've heard a message that is the message of God. You ought then to display that message, not just with your lips, but with your lives. Your lives are to show that person has been with Jesus. That person loves the message of Christ and Him crucified. There's a brother in Scotland that... Wherever you go with him, strangers, restaurants on the street and in the street and elsewhere, and it's as if he can't help himself. He's talking to a person and he shares Christ. A minister who came over, take him to a restaurant on a Saturday for lunch, and there's this waitress and just doing her work, and she he beautifully presents the person and work of Jesus Christ. What is that? But that they love the message. Some of us love to talk about things. Whatever our hobbies are, whatever our interests are, we could talk on and on and on about them. Think about what Paul went on and on and on about. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Has that permeated us at all? Is that what we're on about? Oh, we have to talk about our work. We have to talk about our finances. We have to talk about our schedules. It's true, we do. But is there not another compulsion that we have to talk about Christ. 
We have to talk about His person and His work. We have to share it to others. Is it not astounding that there are men, women, and children in our lives that we know, we know most certainly that were they to perish, they would perish and enter into damnation. And we struggle to think of mentioning a word of Christ and Him crucified. What is that? But in practice, what's being displayed is a greater fear of man than love to Christ and Him crucified. The message made known by Paul, by the other apostles, and the message that is to permeate our lives is the message of Christ and Him crucified. This was the main message. I determined to know nothing save. Again, it doesn't mean, we see it evidenced in this epistle alone, it doesn't mean that he's only talking about the topic of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But it does mean, as we used in the opening, that if you were to summarize and say, well, what's the main thing he's talking about? What's everything related to? What's the hub to which everything's connected? What's the light which shines through everything He presents? It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, brethren, let us spend some time seeking to apply this. It ought to be very clear that this provides instruction for the ministry. You say, okay, I can check out now that you know this is the minister talking to himself. No. This is what you need to seek from the ministry. This is what you need to pray for the minister. This is what you need to pursue from your own pastor and from others. Yes, you need the whole counsel of God. Paul was able to say, I didn't shun. I didn't hide. I didn't cower to open to you the whole counsel of God. But he's able to say that and say, that what was presented was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You need to hear about pure worship. You need to hear about various principles. But brethren, you need to hear preeminently about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Sometimes we have this temptation to think, well, you know, that's what I got way back when in Sunday school when I was a child. You know, I've gotten that. Let's get on to the better things. Maybe we don't say it that way because immediately we're caught in our words. The better things, better than Jesus Christ and Him crucified? But we sometimes feel that way. You know, yeah, 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 the crucifixion, that's huge, that's important. You know, we talk about that enough. Let's get on to other things. But think of how this actually, if ministers proclaim this, is beneficial not just to the unconverted that may be present, but beneficial not only to the young convert or the newly converted, but to the most mature saint of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember, as Paul says, I don't glory in anything, but in Christ Jesus crucified. Was Paul a mature Christian? Was Paul an advanced leader of the church? We say, of course he was. But the thing he never ceased boasting about, the thing that he was ever full of, was Jesus Christ. When he saw, as it were, his days numbered, and he says, let me be frank with you all. You know, I love you sincerely, but it would be better for me to die to go and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. But such is my love for you that I would rather at this present moment continue that I may serve you. Right? But he gives a little disclosure of his longing. He longs to be with Christ. Who's more mature than the saints in heaven? The most mature saint in this earth is the least mature compared to any of the saints in heaven. And what is the saint in heaven constantly doing? Worthy is, think of this, the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified is the message ministers need to give, not just to those who are unconverted, not just to those who are starting out, but it's the message that's to fill and feed us. It's Him. He is the one. What's the sacramental meal He gives? This is My body broken for you. This is the blood. This cup is the New Testament in My blood. 
He's giving Himself to us. There is no growth of spiritual life except it be by Christ and Him crucified. Furthermore, move on, of course, including ministers, but all of us. It warns us. It provides cautions to us. Beware in your Christian studies, in your Christian pursuits, of spending the majority of your time on that which is minor in Scripture. It's a temptation. It's a temptation that grips the best and the worst. It's a temptation because we become familiar with something, we think, I figured it out, and I'm going to move on to something else. This has my interest. And there are some people who are like the bees that just go from this, flip there, get a little nectar, get a little nectar, get a little nectar, and so on. There are other ways of thinking about bees, of course, which are beneficial. But the Christian is to stop and take in the nectar of Christ and Him crucified. That's His great delight. We could say it this way to change the idea. The Christian that goes to the various flowers gathers the nectar and produces the honey that is sweet which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I go to Genesis. I go to Deuteronomy. I go to 2 Samuel. I go to the Ten Commandments. I go to the preaching of the Gospel. I go to church government. I go to purity of worship. And I find there Christ and Him crucified. I have to deal with family issues. These are the roles. This is the way a child's to relate. And what do I find? How Christ and Him crucified addresses that. That's the point that Paul makes throughout his epistles. You are to live by Christ and Him crucified. So in your studies, majority of your time should be on this theme. The person, the work, the natures, and so on. All that He's done. All that He is. So think Have you exhausted the mystery of the Incarnation? As soon as we ask it, we have to say, by no means. It's interesting, in the early church, the one who had a right to the title theologian wasn't just one who studied what we call theology. It was one who had made great attainments in the knowledge of the incarnation of the Son of God because it is the Word incarnate of God. Theos Logos, God-Word. And so John the theologian, as he was called, and others in patristic times received that as they held forth Jesus Christ. Let this be your main study. Let Christ be your constant focus. Gives us the caution then. You can think of it this way for illustration. When you think of the... what. All denominations acknowledge to be the greats in church history. Augustine, Athanasius, Anselm, Luther, Calvin, and so on. What are they known for? You know, like where did they spend the bulk of their time? They spent the bulk of their time on the main things. They spent the bulk of their time when addressing the little things, showing how it's related to the main thing. This ought to be representative of our pursuits. That we don't get lost in this infinite trail of things that lead us away from the main thing, but that we live in the current which is Christ Jesus. The overwhelming emphasis of our studies ought to be on those weighty things most clearly associated with Him. The Trinity. Why that? He doesn't say I preach the Trinity. No, but He preached Jesus Christ who is the second person of the Trinity. So you need to know that. You must Come to deeply study that if you're going to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Think of this. The bedrock heresies of Christian history have to do with the faulty understanding of the Trinity and of the person of Christ. So we have Arians and we have others, of course, that are known to us because they obliterated the teaching of the Trinity. If you are asked... What is the Trinity? Could you give a satisfactory answer? And more than that, if someone challenged you, show me that in the Bible. Could you give that? You know, these are fundamental things to help us know the person of Christ. Do we know His atonement? Think of it this way. What was the last Christian book you read? 
When was the last time you read something directly dealing with Christ crucified? When you made that your intake, your deep, delightful, hungering, thirsting, being satisfied by Him. This is the point. We need to be cautious. We need those finer points, yes. But our staple must be that which is most intimately about Christ and Him crucified. And so when it is we come to need to address the lesser things, let us be sure that we do it with a lesser proportion and we turn to talk again about Christ and Him crucified. Well, further than this, it's worthy to consider that we ought to make this our study. We've been warned, but we can think in these terms, am I pursuing this as my study? What is your study of God's Word? Hopefully you're reading God's Word. Hopefully you're taking in God's Word. But what books are you reading? What are the things you're taking in about Christ and Him crucified? What sermons are you listening to? You see, there are tons of things that we need to listen to. But is the majority about Christ? Mature ministers in various ways will say this very thing. In my young ministry, you know, I started out with preaching Christ and I went into all these different doctrines. And now in my age, I realize I ought to spend far more time opening the person and work of Christ. Well, likewise, ought we to make purposed study of that, that the sermons we listen to are primarily those most directly about the person and work of Christ Jesus. Let me go further. What do you speak about with one another? On our Sabbath days when we gather around the table, what's the conversation about? What is it we're talking about? Oh, there's need to say, you know, how are things going? What can I pray for and all that? Those are all fine and well and good. There's need to hear about, you know, this thing and that thing and the other thing related to God's Word. But brethren, think of it this way. What if Paul were here? What would he be talking about? He'd be talking about Christ and Him crucified. He'd be opening the various questions we might have. Well, Apostle Paul, what about this? And he'd be able to answer it finally, well, and so forth. But doubtlessly, we would leave that place saying, that man spoke of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Is that true of you and me? When people go home after talking with us at the table is the overwhelming sense that woman, that sister in the Lord, that man, that brother in the Lord, that minister, that elder, they spoke of the savory things of Christ. Is it possible that we speak so little of Him because we know so little of Him? Perhaps not doctrinally, but experimentally, experientially. Do we know communion with Christ. What did you do this week? Let me tell you, I spent time with Christ. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you what His Word told me about Him. Let me tell you about this insight I gleaned from this sermon. Let me tell you about this insight I gained from this book. That will edify brothers and sisters. That will feed us. It's amazing, isn't it? Here goes these men on the road to Emmaus and Christ appears. There's a miraculous keeping of His identity from them. And He opens to them the Scriptures, everything about Himself. If you had Christ present and you could ask Him about anything, what would you ask Him about? What doctrine would you ask Him to tell you about? What practice would you be saying, what about this, what about that? Those are needed. God's Word is given to us. But think of this. They say this. It gets abused in certain ways. But the Scriptures do affirm, did not our hearts burn within us? We were moved by the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what enlivened us. Do you remember how they stopped on the road And they said, listen, it's late. The day's coming to an end. Why don't you stay with us? Do you know what happens as soon as He opens their minds and He vanishes? It said, you read it, you heard it. They immediately left to go back to Jerusalem and to tell the eleven what took place. They couldn't sleep. 
They had to go tell the disciples of Jesus Christ. They had to. They couldn't keep it in. Why? Because they had come to know the fellowship of Him who had been crucified and now is alive. Brethren, you have that same privilege. God's Word brings Christ to you. You have access to the throne of grace. And think how the Scriptures speak of this. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, He's seated on the throne of grace. We come boldly unto Him. We come to the person who was crucified. We come to our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. We read His Word. We pray unto Him. We commune with Him. If that's true, will our hearts not burn and compel us to tell our brothers and sisters more about Him. And if you do so, and a brother or sister says, that's not you. That's them. You need the intake of Christ. Your brothers and sisters need the intake of Christ. Brethren, let us resolve that we would fill our lives with this message that Paul made central to his ministry that we would take in Christ and Him crucified. And no man, no woman, no visitor, no member, no brother, no sister would be able to say anything but that person knows, speaks of, lives by, loves Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the message which brought Corinth to faith. Corinth was a luxurious city. It was a wicked city. They gloried in prostitution. They gloried in all manner of defilement. What message brought such idolaters and profane men to salvation? Paul says, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We live in a similar state. What message will bring men to salvation? It's this. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Brethren, think of it this way. What message brought you to salvation? It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, brethren, cease not to give thanks to God for this message. Cease not to central your th- center your thoughts upon this message, to drink in this message, to speak of this message, to share this message, and to order your lives according to this message. That you wouldn't just be going about doing duties. That you wouldn't just be going about doing your responsibilities. But you would do so. Think of this. The servants who were called to do all of their service to their masters, they were to do so as unto the Lord. You, go clean up the mess I just made. You, it's time to make me a meal. You, tend to my children. I've got a lot of work to do. The Christian servant going around with a smile on his face. Why? Because he was serving Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It transforms everything. Therefore, brethren, let us be much in this message and pray that the Lord would own it unto us. Would you stand with me?